Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig. I'm the Executive Director here at the Initiative. I'm joined today via Zoom by our Chief Economist, Eric Crampton, and together we're interviewing our special guest for today's episode, also via by Zoom, and that's Xavier Marquez. And Xavier is an Associate Professor in Political Theory and Political Science here at Victoria University of Wellington, where he's also the head of school of the School of History, Philosophy, Political Science and International Relations. We've invited uh, Professor Marquez onto the podcast because we want to talk about one of his specialties, because he's an expert in dictatorships, in authoritarianism, in non-democratic politics. He's published widely on these matters. And the reason, of course, why this is extremely relevant today is because of Vladimir Putin. We want to talk about how the Russian president, or should we rather call him dictator these days, has changed over the years, how he's evolved, and how the structures in Putin's government might explain what is happening in Ukraine and what we might expect in the future. So with that introduction, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Now, you have been observing from afar Russian politics for quite a while, and I've read some of your publications and you've made mentions of Putin. You've previously told me you're, of course, not the expert on Russian politics, but you're an expert in the style of government that we can observe now in Russian politics. So if I could just ask you for your impression, basically, what did you think on the 24th of February when Putin decided uh, to invade Ukraine? What was your first thought? Did you think that actually fits into the picture that you had of him? And does it fit into the general picture of dictatorships and authoritarian regimes that you have researched for so many years? I have to say that I, I wasn't a, a close observer of what was going on in Ukraine. So with my read of what was happening at the time is that I thought he was very likely to invade, but that wasn't necessarily based on any deep understanding of the Russian of politics and the Russian regime. Um, thinking back, though, it does seem to me that, that this is a, an outcome that's connected to the nature of the regime. Um, and that is so kind of a more a particular instance of a larger pattern that, you know, the rulers who accumulate lots of personal power, uh, like Putin has over the years, who have fewer sources of, of, of uh, contrary information, uh, who could have a background in the security services, as he does, tend to be more aggressive in foreign policy, tend to be less likely to uh, be willing to back down if they have a, um, a, an aggressive foreign policy objective. So it doesn't entirely surprise me looking back. Uh, and when I was sort of broadly aware of what was going on, I thought, he's likely to invade, he's not going to pull back. Um, but I, you know, I certainly, like many other people, I didn't actually you know, predict what happened or anything um, quite so certain. I should present myself as, as mm. being more clairvoyant than I actually was. It is quite an evolution, though, of Putin. You described um, actually the cult-like features of the Putin leadership in one of your previous mm. papers. So people were actually turning this president into a cult-like figure that they followed. And that was probably true about 10 years ago. But now in front mm -hmm. of our eyes, we are seeing the transformation of this kind of president into a much more evil, cynical, almost Hitler-style mm -hmm. uh, dictator mm -hmm. in the co course of this war on Ukraine. Uh, 
is that unprecedented? Is that something that happens with authoritarian leaders after a while? Or uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's it's not unprecedented. Um, I think that's clearly an evolution of the Russian uh, regime over time. It started out with uh, Putin uh, uh, being selected by by Boris Yeltsin to become uh, president as uh, Yeltsin resigned. The so-called the family around Yeltsin was looking for a safe pair of hands who could uh, safeguard their fortunes um, and the fortunes of the, of the so-called oligarchs who had benefited from the privatizations of the 90s. Uh, so in many ways, he, he was not, um, he didn't seem initially to be a figure who would accumulate large amounts of power. Uh, but over time, um, you have people who have people that he relies on for support, the so-called Siloviki or the members of the security services, kind of his core coalition, the core ruling coalition, have managed to marginalize all these other people. Um, and they, you know, over time, uh, and some of that has to do with uh, recent developments like COVID, which apparently he is quite afraid of and has restricted his access. Is, um, is that a common feature of most dictatorships that they start building these personality cults? I've only spent a, a brief time in, in Russia myself, actually, and that was during the time in which um, Putin was prime minister and, um, and Medvedev was president. And I remember mm -hmm. going into one of these um, souvenir shops to find a whole range of memorabilia of Putin, of Medvedev, in a way that I only knew from Britain, um, you know, memorabilia of the royal family, things like that. So, mm. so porcelain yeah. with prints and so on. And that struck me. And then I remember, of course, from German history, um, the cult that they built around a Führer, of course, and uh, sayings like, if only the Führer knew, then of course the problem would not longer be there. So is that a common feature, that all dictatorships have to build this personality cult first? I don't think it's necessarily all of them, uh, but it does happen, especially with people who are successful in some uh, measure at uh, particular times. So Putin was really seen, especially after the, the mid-2000s, as sort of having tamed the chaos of the, the initial uh, break of Soviet Union returning Russia to growth and so on. So he was he was quite popular. There was a, a degree of personalization in that he continued to hold power even while Medvedev was was president. Uh, Medvedev was clearly subordinate to him, and that's um, characteristic of the sort of the personalization of power, where the office doesn't matter quite as much as the person. Um, And I think some of those manifestations that you saw in Russia, they're, they're kind of bottom-up stuff, like sort of market-driven, like people coming up with products that uh, celebrate the leader and people wanting to express their support in various ways. But there is, like, the more important bits are not so much the, the sort of the memorabilia, like you can find it with, with Trump in the U.S. and you know, various other uh, leaders. Um, It's not so much that, but the, the kind of the, the core group around Putin becoming less and less likely to challenge him and uh, more and more likely to flatter him, uh, to like, you know, give, uh, not oppose his wildest ideas, including obviously the most tragic one, which is the invasion of Ukraine. Um, there are stories about how in the mid 2000s, 
people who were close to Putin started to see uh, that Putin seemed to think that he was the best at everything, that the only opinion that truly mattered was his, like he was an expert at, I don't know, um, negotiations about the oil sector or uh, you know, trade in general, all kinds of other things uh, connected with him in various ways. So it started to see this power seemed to go to his head, and few people were willing to challenge that. Uh, and that's left love a quote in the sort of a Stalin sense. You know, this this I think there's a little bit of that in Russia, but it's clearly not like a, a an attempt like in North Korea, like what there are large bureaucracies invested in promoting Putin's image in, in this particular way. There's, it's more market-driven in some way. Yeah, that gets to an aspect that it kind of interested me. Uh, you've written before, and I think that I first encountered you in some of your writings on, on uh, cult of personality around dictators and a generalized problem that autocrats can have in trying to get true information. So yeah. once you've gotten into this spot where everybody sort of has incentive to flatter more it gets really hard to discern a true signal. I, I'd love you to explain a little bit more about how all of that works and whether it applies in this kind of case. Yeah, I do. I, I think I think it definitely applies in this case, and and I think the the problem is simply that, um, you know, the 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 more power somebody has to punish you for bringing bad news, the less likely you are going to bring bad news to that person. Um, and this is sort of obviously reinforced by perfectly human tendencies to try not to be the, the messenger, try to be uh, not to be scolded, and so on. Now, in large bureaucratic states, there are usually mechanisms that prevent that sort of thing. Like there are sort of interagency coordination mechanisms, like sort of like intelligence agencies, like produce competing reports and things, and so on. Um, the problem in the in the Putin regime seems to have been that a lot of people over time were promoted for loyalty rather than competence. They were promoted in ways that made them less likely to say, "Just well, your your uh, modernization of the army is not going quite as well as we thought." They want to be fired uh, or worse, um, and there are fewer and fewer of those people. So over time, it becomes very hard unless the the autocrat makes a, a very concerted effort to get correct information. And autocrats do make these efforts. Like, I remember a story from the late late Soviet times, in which, you know, the, the Central Committee of the Party had to, uh, you know, was trying to figure out what was happening at, like, Cotton in Kazakhstan, and they couldn't figure it out, like, you no, know, the numbers were wrong. And they had to, like, use the KGB, like, satellites to figure out, like, what was going on. Like, I couldn't get good information from the Kazakhstan Communist Party on this because people had incentives to lie. And I think lots of people in the Russian uh, regime had incentives to lie to, to Putin about matters of, of serious importance. Um, yeah, and even if the dictator is trying to claim that this time they really want true advice and they really want to find out what's actually going on, like, how do you discern whether that's just another loyalty test, right? to see yeah. what, who, who are the actual true believers and who should be shot in the next round. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, I mean, if you're in charge of, uh, I don't know, modernizing the army or giving you information about whether Ukrainians support Russia, um, how exactly are you going to provide that in a truthful way without being exposed to 
potential uh, problems. Um, and the problems are magnified because that all those other sort of bureaucratic mechanisms that try to to avoid this sort of thing break down, right? So instead of having a, a sort of an interagency process where like competing viewpoints get hashed out, you basically have six people. Uh, I think uh, the, political, the Russian political scientist Vladimir Gelban said this somewhere. Like there are about six people who have uh, serious access to Putin. That's it. Like yeah. everyone else, it's very limited access. Well, that raises another uh, really interesting question, right? So a decade ago, the common view seemed to be that Russia was quasi-feudal, that you had the oligarchs who had profited well out of privatizations. They were the independent source of power and wealth. They were support. They were effectively the barons supporting the king. The king relied on their loyalty. He provided some services back, and you had this complex exchange between them. It really doesn't seem to look like that anymore. I don't know that any of those guys really have that much influence over Putin or, or whether they do. And it's... Are any of the six that you mentioned the kinds of oligarchs that are being targeted by sanctions now, or are they just parts of the state? And should we be optimistic that sanctions on the oligarchs are going to do anything, given how the state there and Putin's support seems to be structured? I don't think so, honestly. Um, I mean, it's hard to tell for sure, like, you know, the structure of the Russian State is, is highly opaque. Um, so, but but from my understanding, which is again not I'm not a specialist, uh, I rely on writings of various other uh, people. But from my understanding, most of the, the oligarchs are no longer powerful. They don't really have a, a, a you know they depend on Putin much more than Putin depends on them. So sanctioning them is unlikely to lead um, to a great deal of of turmoil for the regime. The people who support, like, who are, like, the key, the key people um, in Putin's coalition, they are people who have their money in Russia more than they have their money outside. Uh, the you know, sort of the so-called Siloviki or the, the, the people with a background in the security services. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of these people are probably very rich as well, um, but uh, they're not as easily targeted by these sanctions. So once a system degenerates as much as Russia has, the results can be catastrophic, as we can see now, not just for Ukraine, obviously, as the victim of Russia's or Putin's attack, but actually for Russia mm-hmm. itself, because the country is now completely cut off from the world. It will probably become some sort of North Korea if it continues like that. So impoverished, mm-hmm. cut off from um, international trade, commerce, and absolutely isolated. And Is there any chance then for a system that was built on these authoritarian structures with this little interaction actually between the leader, the the, the autocrat and um, the people around him to reform or can such a system only then completely fail, fall apart and be swept away by something completely different? Well, nothing's ever certain in politics, so I don't want to. But political science of of personalistic rule is not very hopeful. So um, among among the regimes, among the different kinds of political regimes, personalistic power tends to break down through external forces, some of which include defeat in war. So defeat in war tends to, 
tends to be extremely bad for, for autocrats of this kind. Um, but but it, typically the process is messy and you know mm. people get hurt. Um, and I think one of one of the, the, the questions here is about sort of the you know what what might actually make the difference. Um, you know, Eric was talking about sanctions and so on. I think some of the sanctions that do make a difference are things that degrade the performance of the Russian army, um, and that eventually translates into all kinds of pressures on the regime. Mm. Uh, if we are now looking a little bit um, away from Russia into China. Um, I believe the fall of the Berlin Wall was nowhere analyzed as much as in Beijing for the obvious fear um, that China might actually see a repeat of the events in East Germany um, in its own country. And that fear probably was also sparked by the um, Tiananmen protests, which happened in the same year that the Berlin Wall fell. Now, if you put yourself into the position of the Chinese leadership today, they will be watching the developments in Moscow with the same eager interest that they followed the developments around the fall of the Berlin Wall. So if Xi wanted to draw any conclusions then from Putin's strategic blunders and from um, his mistakes that he's made in this war, what would these um, lessons most likely be? Uh, I don't know what lessons they're planning to draw. Um, I mean, there's Probably there's probably a lot of thinking about Taiwan right now in China. Um, so thinking about what happens in Yuan Bay. There's probably a lot of thinking about trying to move to a system that's more independent of the West. Mm -hmm. um, um, But what I meant was actually something slightly different. I meant if it's now becoming so obvious that because of his isolation, Putin probably mm -hmm. didn't get the advice he needed. He made a mass massive strategic mistake, mm -hmm. a blunder. And that will probably lead to his demise, whether it's immediate or in the next couple of years. If you're mm. another authoritarian regime like China watching this from outside, wouldn't you mm. be alarmed and actually try to avoid a repeat of that? Oh, yeah. I'm sure they, they are trying to avoid any kind of uh, simply looking at it and trying to avoid any mistakes. Um, I think the incentives, like if we see, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a sense that among China watchers that you know, there's, a, there's a process of personalization happening in the Chinese regime as well. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's quite as, as, as striking as the one in Russia, um, although in some ways it's, it's, um, there's more of it in some aspects. So it's more of a, uh, an, um, an idealization of the Xi Jinping and, um, you know, there's more of a, a media campaigns that target him and so on. But there's probably less of the, the sort of the, the, the strong pathologies of the Putin regime. I, I mean, I'm going out on a limb here, but I do think that the Chinese regime still has better information about what's going on um, in its own army and various other things. Partly because, unlike the Putin regime, the Chinese regime still depends strongly on the Communist Party of China, which has a huge amount of institutional capital um, and various bodies that actually, you know, still produce information that is relevant to the leadership um, and, you know, various other structures that prevent some of the worst pathologies of personal rule. Like, I don't think it's out of the question that Xi Jinping will make a big blunder too, but I think it's probably less likely in some ways, partly because of the Communist Party.
had one other question, if I might. Um, you've written before, you know, talked to these dilemmas around censorship and suppression of the press and how much of that to be, should be allowed. I would have, I've been surprised in watching on Twitter feeds and you can never quite tell what's true and what's misinformation on Twitter feeds, but lots of reports from people in Ukraine who have seemed surprised that friends and relatives in Russia are um, surprised by their reports of what's going on in Ukraine and refusing to believe it. Now, I completely understand that Russian media would be saying that, okay, well, the Ukrainians are Nazis and we're liberating Donbass and we're stopping these far-right people. I would have thought that generations under communist rule, followed by a short interval of a little bit more freedom, then Putin again, I would have thought there would be more skepticism around official media reports in Russia. I'm curious how that's not being discounted or seemingly not being discounted from at least those Twitter reports and what can break those kinds of equilibria. Is it um, things like the apparent mass resignations of at least some um, Russian news broadcasters saying we no longer say, repeat their lies or is it other things coming through that would start breaking those equilibria? Mm. Yeah, I, I suspect that the anecdotes that we see on Twitter about Russian families refusing to believe, they're very, very um, uh, rare uh, in the grand scheme of things. Like, we probably don't see a lot of the anecdotes where Russian families actually do refuse to believe, uh, 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 don't refuse to believe, but actually. Um, I actually have some, some Russian uh, friends who, who, like, have relatives in Ukraine, and you know, that, that doesn't seem to be generally the case. And in some, some instances, it won't be possible, like, if they see, like, you know, family member got killed or captured, that is a hard fact that people will not be able to ignore. So I do suspect that the stuff we see on Twitter is, is shared because it's striking, right? You know, why would the family refuse to believe what their other family member is telling them? Um, and that's, that's just kind of weird. Um, and it probably is weird. My guess is that most families actually do believe what their family members tell them, much more so than they believe whatever is on the media. Like, if a family member in the Ukraine is telling them, we're being shelled, most of the time they're not going to disbelieve that. Um, that leads me to the question, what we in the West can do uh, to influence the behavior of the Russian leadership, or mm -hmm. what we can do to help inform the Russian public? It's hard to tell. I'm, I, I'm sorry, I don't have a good answer to that. But some of that information filters back um, through families of the people who are at war, uh, through the, those you know connections between Ukrainians and Russians. I mean, there's a lot of, of cross-border connections. So I think it's going to be a bit hard for the Russian government to maintain a, a total information vacuum where people just Uh, follow along simply with what the Russian government is saying. Now, it doesn't mean that they will fall apart if people are skeptical of, of Russian media. And there are probably other things that people with better information can come up with. I'm, I'm just not, I'm probably a bit more sanguine about the difficulties that regimes face in you know, making people believe sheer propaganda when there is contrary information coming from trusted sources. Uh, including family members. Uh, it's not impossible, but, but I, I, I sort of think it's, it's probably rare. 
Eric, did you have a final question? Well, my final one is something that's bothered me for, for some time. What the, the path out of, of autocracy for autocrats. So if I remember back to when Pinochet left office in, in uh, Chile, he was a terrible dictator, but he could have stayed in longer. He decided to leave and they made a constitutional bargain that he would never have to answer for his crimes. And that is what got him out. Uh, a few decades later, a Spanish judge uh, throws him in jail for a while uh, when he's over there for medical treatment. Now, it has seemed that a safe path out for terrible people is important in making the willing to leave office. And uh, it's just hard to see how, what path out is there for this guy? Like he's dictator for life there, or he's got some sinister in Russia, but he's potentially up for war crime uh, investigation. If he ever leaves the country, he might, what paths are there for him to safely exit so that he, well, finds that to be less bad than other alternatives that might be available. Yeah, there are many paths out. Um, and I mean, it, it, clearly some of the paths are very unpalatable, like the Pinochet example. It, it is common also in Latin America to, uh, after military dictatorships, there used to be many cases where agreements were reached uh, to avoid prosecuting uh, former rulers for their crimes so that they could lead so they would decide that they would rather have their, their retirement rather than be prosecuted. But there, those are, you know, there's a there's an inherent credibility problem. Right? Like you can't claim that this is going to be enforced forever. Um, and you know, there's there's lots of. I mean, Putin himself was sort of uh, selected on the basis that the, the Yeltsin family wasn't going to be prosecuted for all their corruption. And, and today's oligarchs <laughs> around Yeltsin are going to be. I mean, it's a kind of dirty hands problem, right? So maybe we do something like this to avoid worse outcomes, but that these sorts of deals tend to be not not credible and they're known not to be credible. Um, yeah. it, it's not impossible. Like, you know, diplomats can be quite creative and you know, people can come up with, with useful ideas. And Putin, until recently, um, I don't know what came of this. I don't follow Russian politics closely enough for this, but until recently, he was trying to come up with a kind of constitutional amendment so that he could remain um, in the background, so to speak, but without uh, holding on to power. Um, and these bargains, again, tend to be not very credible. Um, the, the new guy typically wants to get rid of the old guy. Yeah. Hard problem. It is difficult yeah. to imagine uh, to, to imagine an off-ramp for someone who is estimated to be worth about 200 billion US dollars. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's difficult to imagine that. And I mean, uh, that's an interesting question too. Like, what, what is his, his, his net worth? And, and in some ways, it doesn't actually compute. You know, he owns much of the country in a sense. Mm. Um, I guess what yeah, we are witnessing like, is almost unprecedented. And I think there will be um, much more to talk about in the future about how to deal with Putin or whatever comes next. And I hope we can draw on your expertise again then. All right. But uh, for today, I think that's all we had time for. Thank you very much, Xavier Marquez. And uh, thank you yeah, all thank for listening. You. And I'm sure we'll talk again. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.